We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You can take your seats. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks today. Thank you for every person that you've brought here. Some of us here are experiencing life transformation. You are working in our lives in wonderful ways, and we're eager to hear from you this morning. Some of us come with great joy over the good things in our lives, and we have much to celebrate. Some of us here are filled with grief. We have lost so much. Some of us, Lord, come struggling with the burdens of life in the middle of great hardship. Some of us are not sure if you are even real, if we could believe any of the things that we have been singing about and talking about and reading about. Some of us come this morning having once believed, wondering if we could ever believe again. We are so different, and yet at the same time, we are exactly the same because, Lord, what we need more than anything else is to hear from you this morning. And so we pray that you would meet us where each of us are, that you would tell us that our sin can be forgiven, that you would declare to us that there is a hope and a purpose that is bigger than we could ever imagine, that we are loved, that there is healing, that all that is broken in our lives can be redeemed. Lord, we ask that you would speak all these things to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to meet you after the service. Please come up to the front and introduce yourself to me. We are concluding our sermon series through the fruit of the Spirit uh, that we have been calling The Beautiful Life. 
the fruit of the Spirit comes from Galatians 5, and Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've been calling this series The Beautiful Life because when God, through His supernatural power, through His Spirit, when God forms these character traits in your life, it makes you into a beautiful person. Uh, And today we're looking at the last of these character traits, self-control. And uh, this, this was a tough one, because who, when they hear the word self-control, thinks beautiful? You, you might think, okay, I, I see the value of self-control. I wish I had more self-control, but I don't know. I don't know about you. When I think about self-control, I think about hard work. I think about, about, about uh, how bad I am at it. Uh, I don't think about how beautiful it is. And in fact... A lot of people, what they find most unattractive about Christianity is this idea that that Christians have to constantly say no to things that they want. And so what what is beautiful about self-control? Well, the truth is, uh, all of us say no to things that we want all the time, right? I, I say no to ice cream so that I could say yes to being healthy. Or I say no to being healthy, so I could say yes to having ice cream, right? Not all wants are equal. We all prioritize the wants in our lives, and we make decisions throughout our lives, throughout our days, about what we say yes to and what we say no to. We all have self-control. The question is, what kind of self-control do you most need in your life? And in today's passage, uh, God wants to show us that that there is a a type of self-control that is more beautiful than all of them. It's the kind of self-control that drives you into deeper relationship with God and gives you a life that will not fail, a fail-proof life, a fail-proof purpose in life? What if you could live your life knowing that everything that you did mattered, that that there is nothing that is wasted, that everything that is good and bad and in between will work out for something incredible and amazing and beautiful? Wouldn't you want to live that kind of life? Well, this is the kind of life God wants to give us, and he's going to show us how we get it in today's passage. So we're going to look at three things as we break down this passage, this passage about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We're going to look at why self-control is hard, we're going to look at what self-control looks like, and then we're going to look at how we can grow in self-control. So let's start with the first point here, why self-control is hard. Today's passage begins with the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the reason, the reason, right here at the beginning, the reason that self-control is hard is because the devil is tempting us to want the wrong things. Uh, To put it another way, not all your desires are actually your desires. Some of your desires are actually the devil's desires. I know, sounds like a cliche, the devil made me do it. It is a cliche, uh, but, 
but that's actually not what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is not saying that the devil is making you do something that you don't want to do. It's saying that self-control takes a lot more than just willpower. We have this idea that if you want to control your desires, you just need, if you want to resist temptation, all you need is a stronger will. Uh, You need to be stronger. Uh, A few years ago, Vox published this article called The Myth of Self-Control. And the author begins the article by taking us back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, the, there's a quote up here. Uh, let's, let's look at it together. Uh, Brian Resnick, he says, As the Bible tells it, the first crime committed was a lapse of self-control. Eve was forbidden from tasting the fruit on the tree of knowledge, but the temptation was too much. The fruit was just so pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, Genesis reads. Who wouldn't want that? Humanity was just days old, but already we were succumbing to a vice. The takeaway from this story was clear. When temptation overcomes willpower, it is a moral failing worthy of punishment. Now, we've all experienced this battle, this battle between temptation and willpower, and we know what it's like when temptation wins and willpower loses, and in fact, willpower never lasts forever. The author goes on to talk about how the battle between temptation and willpower, temptation eventually always wins, which is why we don't find self-control to be beautiful and sometimes not even desirable. But what if temptation is not about wanting bad things? What if temptation is about getting tired of good things? What if temptation is not a battle against your will, but a a battle for what is best and most beautiful in the world and in life? See, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, If you go to Genesis chapter 3, Before Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, they were living in paradise. There was no brokenness, no sadness, no sorrow. They were in the presence of God. They had everything they wanted. God could have put a vending machine with protein bars to feed Adam and Eve, but instead he planted a garden, a beautiful garden with vegetables and flowers and plants, a delightful garden. And what happened when Satan entered? Satan comes into this garden and tells them, you know, you, you, know, you could have more, more than paradise. Are you really happy? You know, is this enough? You could have more. And, and he tells them there is no reason why they should deprive themselves of tasting this one fruit that God told them not to eat, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, the problem with Adam and Eve was not that they were weak-willed. The problem was that they were bored of paradise. They were tired of all the goodness that they were surrounded with. G.K. Chesterton, there's another quote here from G.K. Chesterton that I love to look at. Uh, He says, pessimism is not being tired of evil, but being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but being weary of joy. Weary of joy. That is what temptation does. It makes you tired of joy. Temptation makes you look at your life, look at everything that is good in your life, everything that is right in your life, and you say, meh, I I wish I had more. This is not 
enough. That's how temptation gets you. It makes you weary of joy. Have you ever found yourself tired of joy, tired of the good things in your life? Have you ever found it hard to see anything good in your life? Have you felt restless, unhappy, unsatisfied? Have you felt wronged by God because God has not given you the desires of your heart? Have you ever wished that you had better friends, better family, better job, a better home, a better career, a better vacation, better health? Have you looked at your life and all you see is things that are wrong that should be better? Well, the biblical story of creation shouts to us that God created us for joy. He created us to enjoy the beauty of creation, to enjoy good food, to enjoy good company, and most of all, to enjoy Him. The presence of God is not supposed to fill us with dread. It's supposed to fill us with joy because God is the source of all joy. But when you become tired of joy, weary of joy, nothing God gives you feels like it is enough. Now, some of you in this room are having an especially difficult time seeing goodness in your life. Because it's hard to see what is good in your life when all you see is hardship and suffering and pain. How do you do that? Well, look at Jesus. Jesus was not in the Garden of Eden. He was in the wilderness. And he was not in an American wilderness. This wasn't Yosemite. He was in a Middle Eastern wilderness, which is more like Death Valley. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was starving. And what do you think Satan thought when he went to tempt Jesus? He probably thought, this is going to be so easy. Compared to Adam and Eve, who are in paradise, it is going to be so easy to tempt Jesus. But he was dead wrong. This brings us to the second thing we're going to look at today. Why self-control, what self-control looks like. There we go. Um, it. Now, when you look at the temptation of Jesus, it's easy to miss what's actually happening here. When we see Jesus say no to Satan over and over again, it's easy to think, wow, Jesus has strong willpower. But that's not what's happening here. Listen to what Jesus says to, 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 to the devil as they go back and forth. Jesus doesn't say, I can do this. I'm, I'm, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me. That's not what Jesus says. What does he do? He actually quotes the Bible. He doesn't talk about himself at all. He talks about his Father. He talks about God. And so let's look at this dialogue. What does Jesus say to Satan each time he comes to tempt him? Let's look at temptation number one. Uh, this is the do whatever you want as long as you aren't hurting anyone temptation. Okay. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's really hungry. He's really weak. He needs to eat. He's starving. And so Satan comes and he says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And this is actually the same line that he used with Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the first thing he says to Adam and Eve is, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? What's Satan saying? He's saying, Adam and Eve, God doesn't want you to enjoy good food 
but what's stopping you from taking it? You've got hands, you've got feet, go walk over there, grab that fruit. You're not hurting anyone, just do it. What is he saying to Jesus? He's saying, Jesus, you are the son of God. Why starve? You have the power to turn stones into bread. Have a bite. You deserve it. You're not hurting anybody. Have some food. See, we live in this culture that says as long as you aren't hurting anyone, that you should be able to do just about anything that you want. But Jesus didn't take the bait. He had the power to turn these stones into bread. After all, Jesus, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, made manna bread rain from heaven over the people of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. Why not feed himself? Isn't Jesus' hunger just as important, if not more, as the hunger of the people of Israel who are wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience to God. Well, listen to what Jesus says. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, my father is more precious to me than bread. He's saying, even though I am starving in this wilderness, I see the goodness of my Father. The Spirit of God led me into this wilderness, and He didn't do it to ruin me. He did it for my good, and God will redeem this. I am hungry, I am starving, but as long as I possess my Father, I have everything. How does Jesus fight this temptation? He, he fights it by relishing the goodness of the presence of God. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. And you will never learn to say yes to God and to enjoy God in the fullest if you are incapable of saying no to the things that you want. Now let's look at temptation number two. This is the no one can tell you what to do temptation. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But all the powerful people in the world will be against him. So Satan takes Jesus up to a mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. He used the same line with Adam and Eve. Uh, Satan in Genesis 3 verse 5 tells Adam and Eve, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil is saying, Adam and Eve, you don't, you, you, you don't, you don't have to listen to God. Don't you want to decide what's right for yourself? You are just as capable of telling the difference between right and wrong as God is. You don't need to listen to him. Listen to your heart. And then he says to, to Jesus, Jesus, are you really going to let all these rulers tell you what to do? They don't deserve to sit on the thrones that they're sitting on. You deserve to sit on those thrones. You don't need to listen to them. Let me help you take what you deserve. Now, we live in this culture that says that we should trust ourselves and be true to ourselves above everything else. Anything that gets in the way of living authentically, anyone who tells you what to do is wrong. 
But Jesus didn't take the bait. Jesus didn't have to listen to anyone. He didn't have to listen to Pilate. He didn't have to listen to the Pharisees. He didn't have to listen to Herod. He didn't have to listen to anyone, but he did. Why? Not because he had strong willpower, but because he had a great love. Listen to him, what Jesus says to Satan. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is saying, I don't define my life by getting what I want, getting my way. I define my life by serving my Father who loves me and who I love. I, I define my life by my love and devotion to others. My number one goal in life is not to have other people serve me, but for me to serve others and to bring glory to my fathers. I would rather serve God in the wilderness than to have people serve me in the palace. See, serving God and serving other people is not demeaning. Jesus shows us that it can be the most fulfilling thing that we can do with our lives. Let's look at temptation number three. This is the you don't have to suffer temptation. Jesus knew that he would have to die. And so the devil comes and he takes him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and he says, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Satan actually used the same line on Adam and Eve. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, after Eve told them, told the devil that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die the devil says, you will not certainly die. What is the devil saying? He's saying, Adam and Eve, didn't God tell you that he loves you? How could someone who loves you let you die? There won't be any consequences if you eat this fruit. Eat it. Find out what happens. God, if he really loves you, will not let you die. And he says the same thing to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus... If God really loves you, he will not let you die. Jump off this temple, and the angels will catch you. Just watch and see. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You don't have to go to the cross. Now, we live in a culture that does not know how to cope with pain and suffering. We spend our lives doing the best to avoid pain in our lives, avoid suffering in our lives, and when suffering comes, we do our best to ignore it or think about something else. But Jesus didn't take the bait. He is the eternal Son of God. He has existed from eternity past, and Jesus did not need to die, but he did. Why? Well, listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 6, as he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is saying, I don't need to test my Father's love to know that he loves me. His love may lead me into the wilderness. His love may lead me to the cross, but I know that he loves me and he will use even my pain, even my suffering, even my death to do something good. See, suffering 
Jesus is showing us that suffering is not something that needs to be avoided. It is something that needs to be redeemed. So how does Jesus fight the temptations of the devil? He doesn't fight with willpower. He fights with superior joy, superior love, superior confidence in his father. His love for his father and his love for his people was stronger and deeper than any of the temptations that the devil could offer him. My favorite part of this passage is verse 13. If you look in in your worship guides, look at what happens at the end of this passage. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. Luke tells us. The devil was finished. He had nothing left. He had nothing new to give Jesus. And so he just left. Now some of you this morning are, you're in the wilderness. And it is hard to see God's goodness in your life right now. And it feels like nothing is going your way. You've asked God for relief and just one break and it hasn't come and you are tempted. You're tempted to doubt God. Maybe you're tempted to give up on God. Maybe you're tempted to try something else. Some of you this morning are weary of joy. There's no great suffering in your life, but there is also no great joy in your life. And when temptation comes, you are powerless. You are powerless because you're tired and you want to try something new, something different. How do any of us grow in the kind of self-control that Jesus shows us in the wilderness? This brings us to the last thing we're going to look at today, how to grow in self-control. Did you ever wonder why it was so important for the devil to tempt and to lead humanity astray. What was his deal? What did we ever do to him? He had his demons. Why does he need us? Why, Why was the devil even in the Garden of Eden? Well, we see the answer in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After God confronted Adam and Eve about their sin, he pronounced judgment over the devil... And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's really interesting, though, the way that God judges the devil. Because God could have squashed the devil right there. He could have struck him with lightning right there, but he didn't. What did he say? He said, one of their children is going to do it. A human being is going to do it. One of their, one of, a, a child of the woman is going to come one day. See, it was humanity's job to judge the devil, and the only person that could judge the devil was a human being. In fact, that was the first job that God gave to Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it, uh, the Bible tells us that God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and take care of it. Now, in Hebrew... That word take care actually means guard. What was, Ad, what was Adam and Eve supposed to guard the Garden of Eden from? It's paradise. Well, they were supposed to guard the, the, the garden from the devil. You see, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was supposed to be the place where the devil was pronounced evil and he would be crushed forever. But instead, Adam and Eve joined the devil 
Satan thought that he had escaped judgment, but he underestimated the love of God. See, Satan never imagined that God would become a man, that he would suffer, that he would rise again, and that he would come again to save his people and to make all things new. He never imagined the possibility of Jesus. Satan thought he could break Jesus. And given the chance, he didn't think that Jesus would go through with the cross. When Satan tempted Jesus, he was saying, Jesus, we don't have to be enemies. We can be friends. Talk to Adam and Eve. Your father doesn't care about you. Your people don't care about you. Why are you doing this? I care about you. But he had no idea, no idea how much Jesus loved his father, no idea how much Jesus loved sinners like you and me. Back in the 80s, there was this TV show, a TV movie called The Day After. Uh, Kids, before Netflix, there was something called television that people used to watch, to watch shows and movies. Uh, and this is, to this day, actually, the, 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 the most watched thing on television ever. Uh, and if you were around to watch it, you, you, I'm sure you remember it. Uh, it gave me nightmares. Uh, it's, a, it's about a small American town uh, and what happens after a nuclear holocaust in this town. And spoiler alert, everyone dies. Everyone dies. Because the point of the movie is that there is no day after a nuclear holocaust. There is no day after. Nothing survives. Everyone loses. Everyone dies. Now, there should not have been a day after Genesis chapter 3. There should not have been a day after when Adam and Eve joined forces with the devil against God. There should be no day after for any of us after we die. We have failed over and over again to resist all sorts of temptations. We have been tired of joy, tired of God. We have reached points in our lives where we've been blind to the good things that God is doing in our lives. Incapable of gratitude, incapable of joy. There should have been no day after, but God, in his great love, sent Jesus to endure something infinitely worse than a nuclear holocaust on the cross to save us. He became our guilt, our sin, our shame. He bore the judgment of God in our place, and he died to make 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000 days after for you and for me. So how do you grow in self-control? Not through willpower. You grow in self-control by taking the great and infinite love of God into your heart. The love of God that sent Jesus into the world, into the wilderness, onto a cross, out of the grave, and the love that will send Jesus back again to make all things new. You take that love into your heart, and the devil will not stand a chance. Temptation will not stand a chance, because you will have joy in the wilderness. You will have satisfaction in the wilderness, 
you will have God in the wilderness. And you will be able to say yes to God and yes to serving others even when you want to do something else. We can taste and see this great love of God here at this table. This table declares to us that God has seen the worst in you and that he loves you and that everything bad in you and around you can be, has been, and will be redeemed. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his victory over the devil. Lord, that what drove him and sustained him in that wilderness was a perfect love for you a love that, that we need but fail at over and over again. And his perfect love for us, that, that, that instead of hating us for our sin and our brokenness, Lord, that he loves us. And God, we pray that you would help us to believe that this is true, that you would help us to take Jesus into our heart, your great love into our heart, that we would be transformed by it. And we ask this, in Jesus' name.